Trigger warnings for this episode include the discussion of homophobic violence and murder. Please proceed with caution. The queer histories of colonised countries are so often swept under the rug. Ireland is no exception. Prior to the formal Irish independence in 1922, sexuality in Ireland was governed by the UK-wide laws emitted from the Parliament of the United Kingdom, such as the Offences Against the Person Act, 1861. These laws were automatically inherited by the new Irish Free State. This short paragraph accounts for 44 of only 706 words on LGBT history in Ireland on Wikipedia, and sums up a long-standing issue with Irish history in general. It has, more often than not, been swept under the rug of British rule. If Irish queer culture is unfamiliar to you, our next set of episodes are designed to bring you up to speed. Talking with civil rights trailblazers and LGBTQ citizens alike, join us for the final leg of this season through the country of Ireland. Welcome to episode 16 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. What springs to mind when you think of Irish culture? Depending on where in the world you hail from, you may be familiar with some cultural facets over others. Ireland spills over with globally recognised contributors to the arts, particularly literature, and within this country, which is geopolitically divided into Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, there is a complex intermingling of Western customs and Indigenous culture. Over the coming episodes, we will, of course, address the influence of British colonialism on Ireland and the importance of applying a decolonial lens. But that is not the focus of this first episode. The intention of these episodes is to flesh out the queer history of a country which, in your mind, is held separate from the United Kingdom. But as with previous episodes, particularly those in Indonesia, colonialism is consistent in the part it plays in encouraging queerphobic sentiments and social norms. So what is Irish queer history? There are moments which do stand out. The decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1993, the legalisation of gay marriage in 2015, the passing of the Gender Recognition Act in the same year. But these highlights don't give us the same view of the underbelly of Irish queer culture, or how it came to fruition. There was one person that, for the longest time, I had wanted to ask about what Irish queerness looked like, whose lifetime of work has been integral to the progression and preservation of Irish queer history. For our two-part exploration of queer Ireland, we are talking to Ireland's gay godfather, Tony Walsh. So first and foremost, Tony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, in your own words, if you could just tell us a wee bit about yourself. Yes, hi Georgie, I'm Tony Walsh. I'm a 60-year-old gay man living in Antalya, Turkey. And I have spent a lifetime involved in activism of some form or another. From the age of 17 onwards, 
spent 10 years on the board of the National LGBT Federation during, I suppose, its infancy from 1979. It was founded in 1979, and I got involved six months after it was founded and um, was a board member with various responsibilities throughout its early history, up until after the Hirschfeld Centre, which was a community centre that the National Gay Federation, as it's then known, established. Along the way, I ended up co-founding, originating, co-founding GCN, uh, which of course has turned into a phenomenally successful queer um, magazine. And then in the mid-90s, I reorganized the holdings of the National LGBT Federation and they evolved into what's now known as the Irish Karaka, of course, which I'll talk to you more about. I haven't always, um, most of my activism actually has been mediated through uh, voluntary structures. I mean, I've been affiliated to a number of different uh, civil society organizations, as mentioned, like the National LGBT Federation. But a lot of the time my activism has, has it's been non-aligned and it's, I suppose it pivots through a, a sense of personal responsibility. And for much of the 90s, I actually funded a lot of my activism, my volunteerism through uh, working in the entertainment sector as a DJ and a club promoter. But I suppose what I should say is that, like, I'm, I mean, I'm 60 years old, so, like, I've spent the last 40 years being a witness to phenomenal change in Ireland and further afield. Yeah, and I feel actually quite privileged that I've come out the other side, especially come out the other side of the AIDS pandemic, and I'm still standing. It's been quite an exciting ride. There's a lot to process there. And... <laughs> I mean, my, my first takeaway is that I don't know if there's anything you haven't done at this point. And my, I think my second response, obviously, without getting a too cloying, is it's gratitude. You know, you've obviously spent, I mean, longer than I've been alive, invested in this work and highly engaged. And it is, it's, All yeah. To that, by the way, is, you know, once an activist, always an activist. I, I never set out to be a professional activist, but I think I refined my attitudes to social justice and to the world I saw around me and my, my desire to change what I found was uh, problematic issues in my life and problematic issues in society. Um, and I've, I've always felt... So a lot of it actually inculcated from family, always felt a desire to sort of better my world for myself and people around me. And, you know, if you grow up with that and you develop that type of attitude, it never leaves you. <laughs> you can run away from it, but it'll always follow you. <laughs> and it'll always find an outlet. And, you know, and I'm, hopefully we'll have time to talk about this more. Um, but, you know, there's, there's always something that needs changing. And I think as long as we have a voice, and you know this so well because you do it so eloquently, but as long as we have a voice, then where I feel we're duty-bound to use that voice, and especially to use it on behalf of others who have yet to find theirs or don't have a platform for their voice. So I think it's 
it's really important. You know, I'm, I suppose that's my way of checking my privilege a little bit in an indirect way of checking my privilege. So, you know, we have to, it's, it's about, if you see something that needs changing, well then, you know, don't wait for other people. Get up and make it happen. And in doing so, I think we become an inspiration to other people and we mot- other, motivate other people. And I think that's really the, the recurring dynamic that I see in the, the recurring dynamic that's informed the LGBTQ civil rights movement from the get-go. It's been a small group of people enabling an increasingly larger group of people and so on and so on and so on. And that group of people renews itself and renews itself and renews itself and inspires and inspires and inspires. And hopefully, you know, we bring everyone in our wake. It doesn't always happen quite as easy as that, but anyway. You're right. It does feel sometimes that it is about just proliferation from one person or one group of people and that chain effect. And actually, that does bring me on to my first proper question, which is if we go right back to the source of that proliferation, we were to go back to the island in the 1980s. I wanted to ask you, what was the state of the gay rights movement there and in that time period? And on top of that, how did the gay rights movement in Ireland in that period compare to movements in places like the UK and the US and even other parts of Europe? It's interesting that you're using the term the gay rights movement because, in fact, it very much was, or it felt like lesbians and gay men uh, to themselves. The trans civil rights movement and social scene in Ireland uh, started to find its feet from the late 70s onwards, a few years after the lesbian gay civil rights movement was, was more formally established and, and structured. And they were really where those, those two uh, branches of uh, agitation for a while certainly ran in parallel. It was, it was really only in the 1990s, I think, that the lesbian gay civil rights movement, I'm jumping ahead of myself now, but I will come back and answer your question. It was really only in the 1990s, after lots of overtures and, you know, on the basis of personal relationships that had been formed and established and were growing, that um, a much better enmeshment of lesbian and gay, bi and trans concerns and voices started to actually meld together in the way that we actually see today and we take for granted. But in the 70s, so really, we're, we're almost at the cusp of the 50th anniversary of the establishment of lesbian gay civil rights on the island of Ireland. The first noise happened in Belfast, in Queen's University, in the liberal and progressive environments that was enabled by uh, Queen's University Belfast. This would have been in 19, between 1971 and 73. And shortly thereafter, something similar happened in uh, Trinity College, Dublin. The Irish gay rights movement was founded in Dublin and Cork, following some smaller, more ad hoc groups. And by the time I got involved, shortly after the Hirschfeld Centre had been established, which was a second attempt at a lesbian gay community centre in Dublin. Shortly after I got involved, um, this would have been in late 1979, so the lesbian gay rights movement was five years old at that point. It's in its infancy. And it's full of fervor and excitement and dynamism. And you know what? 
that was like honey to a bee as far as I was concerned as a 17-year-old, a 19-year-old, you know, especially 19-year-old that just wants to go out and like change the world. It was a really exciting time. And it was a really exciting time for many reasons. One, because the civil rights movement needed people. We, you know, if you think about it, when I came of age as, as a young gay man and as a political activist at a time when there were zero positive images of LGBT people in the print or broadcast media or in pop culture. Zero. In fact, the first, the first time I came across a positive use of the word homosexual was actually in a British feminist magazine, Spare Rib, <laughs> which I had a subscription to. I think it would be in about 1977 or something. <laughs> So there were no positive images. Lesbians were routinely denied custody. Lesbian mothers were routinely denied custody of their children in separation cases. There's no divorce, of course. Homosexuality between, sex between men was illegal. And although women weren't, lesbians weren't specifically penalized by the law, the existence of the law had the effect of just simply criminalizing the totality of Uh, male and female homosexuality. And how that played out was we were just simply othered. We were constantly othered by both statutory Ireland and civil society. There was marginalisation, there was exclusion, there was invisibility. And of course, that's the main issues that the early civil rights movement had to address, the lack of visibility. And it was one of the things that actually motivated me uh, because... You know, as a 19-year-old, I just didn't see myself reflected back. I didn't see my value system as, as a young gay man, a late teenager gay man, uh, reflected back at me. I mean, the year I came out was also the year that Ireland's first gay youth group was, was established by the National Gay Federation at a time when any conversations around youth sexuality was quite fraught and good luck to discussing the needs and concerns and, and dreams and aspirations of lesbian and gay youth. Just, it didn't get a look in. And you even had uh, formal uh, or statutory bodies like the National Youth Council of Ireland and Corda de la Soiga, which was the youth arm of the Dublin Vocational Education Committee, actively working against, working against embracing uh, lesbian and gay youths. The NGF Youth Group had its affiliations to the National Youth Council refused twice. You know, it's just quite extraordinary. So yeah, it was it was exciting because we needed to fight for representation. We needed to fight for visibility. We needed to fight for our voice, and we needed to get laws changed. And the early focus in the eighties was first and foremost on on reform of the criminal law and then imagining what would happen after that. And and you know what, and it was actually difficult, you know, in the lead up to our meet today, I was just thinking back, uh, doing a little bit of time traveling and thinking back to the the manifesto that we, I remember we used in Gay Pride Week 1980 was my first Pride Week. And there weren't enough people for a parade, so we actually had a balloon drop and a, a, we leafed into the city centre of Dublin. And we had a picnic in Marion Square the following day and we were actually asked to leave the square by the park wardens, yeah. You know, dirty queers or whatever. But I'm, I'm thinking back to the manifesto of Pride Week that year and you know where nowhere on it did the word marriage or marriage equality 
was mentioned. It was there was talk of uh, recognition of relationships in the context of taxation, hospital visiting rights, and, and whatever. But you know, we we didn't even imagine that we could actually get married at, at that point. And remember, too, also we're talking about a period throughout all the period up until decriminalization in 1993, we couldn't even male and male rape just simply wasn't the concept. And of course, too, like we're framing all of this, the impact of the criminal law and what that did, it not just sent men to prison unnecessarily for consensual sex, it forced many lesbians and gay men to actually leave the country in search of a more socially liberal environment. So they headed off to New York or San Francisco or Amsterdam, Berlin, Paris, wherever. And that's sort of like, that loss is incalculable. I often think about it because I have peers my age, you know, who as soon as they graduated from college, just up six. Now, mind you, lots of people left in the 80s because it was so economically grim. And that's when we look back at that period, we tend to actually focus on the, the economic welfare or, or the absence of economic welfare in 1980s Ireland. But we forget to parse the, the hostile social environments that existed at the time. And, you know, it was so hostile that people, you know, men were routinely beaten up on the streets just for looking gay. And of course, as you well know, uh, there was like a series of brutal murders right throughout the 70s and the 80s. And actually, it's only now in the distance of time you can look back and realize that some of the more egregious uh, examples of of anti-gay violence and and, and anti-gay brutality that we witnessed throughout the 80s actually was a pushback a pushback against this uh, this unfolding um, liberation, so the, the the greater the greater voice that we were we were framing for ourselves, and greater visibility we were framing for ourselves. Tony refers here to a series of homophobic beatings of several individuals, and the brutal murder of Declan Flynn, a gay man, in Fairview Park in Dublin. Fairview Park was a popular gay cruising area at the time. And on September 9th, 1982, Flynn passed through this park and was set upon by a gang of five men who beat him to death. In a confession, one of the killers stated that, and I quote, we were part of the team to get rid of the queers from Fairview Park. At sentencing, all five walked free. In suspending the sentences of all five perpetrators, presiding judge Mr. Justice Gannon said, one thing that has come to my mind is that there is no element of correction that is required. All of you come from good homes and experienced care and affection. In response to this verdict, around 400 people marched in protest in the largest gay rights demonstration ever seen in Ireland at this stage in its history. The relevance of society were constantly pushing, pushing back against that. But you know what? It was a fucking exciting time to be alive. Because <laughs> you know, there was a sense that anything was possible. There's also something, there's also something really interesting about being a sexual outlaw, because you're not bound by any rule books, you know? There's no rule book. I mean, in a way, it's bloody disgusting that, you know, society ignores you and makes you invisible and diminishes you and everything else, especially if that plays out in a really hostile and nasty and demeaning way. But on the other hand, it also paradoxically gives you the freedom. There's something inherently liberating 
in knowing that you're a sexual outlaw because you're not bound by the same sort of heteronormative rules as the rest of society and you can go off and do whatever you want, you know, which we did. Um, and that meant, you know, and in some ways we also took our cue from the, from the second wave of feminism in the 1970s as well, where we were, we felt like sort of sexual pioneers, you know, exploring a new frontier and an exciting frontier where we were, you know, considering and framing and, and, and developing new ways to actually have relationships, new ways to actually build families, new ways to build communities and, and, and inter alia actually develop a much better society for ourselves and everyone else around us. It was always a great quote, early, early Pride events in, in Dublin, the early 80s. I remember the National Gay Federation had this massive banner that said, gay liberation is your liberation. And for years, in my own sort of conceited way as sort of 20-something uh, fella, I, for a long time, I thought that that message was, was for me. Gay liberation is my liberation. And it, I don't know what age I was when I realized that actually that, that message was being sent by Irish lesbians and gay men to the rest of Irish society. You know, liberate us. It's not some zero game here. Liberate us and allow us to liberate ourselves and we will liberate everyone else in our wake, you know, and effectively that's what we, I'd like to think that's what has happened along the way. You know, I think Irish, well, not just Irish, I mean, lesbians and gay men, the world over, and also our trans brothers and sisters, I think because of the struggles, we've, uh, the choices we've made, the struggles we've endured, the sacrifices we've made to just simply build better societies for, uh, for, for everyone, that it, the effect of the choices we've made and the, str and the struggles we, that have played out, the effect of that has been to force society to actually look in on itself and ask significant questions about uh, what, what constitutes our humanity, ask questions about, you know, what, what empathy is, uh, what concern is for our, our fellow brothers and sisters. And I think, you know, we never, the LGBT liberation movement, civil rights movement, has never really got due credit for the fact that not only have we, in the face of extraordinary hostility and obstacles that have been put in our way, not only have we managed to liberate ourselves, but we've also actually uh, done considerable service to the rest of mainstream society. <laughs> Everybody benefits at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, you're a, you're hundred percent right, and I think that it's it's something that I've discussed with people before, and it's the idea that particularly kind of gender and sexuality rights movements they facilitate a certain amount of introspection. And as somebody who my background obviously has been in gender, I for the longest time have said everybody thinks they're an expert in gender because they have one. Um, and why I say that is because I think so often, because things like gender and sexuality are such personal subjects, mm. when we other people based on something that is a contrast to something within ourselves, that reflection makes us become introspective and consider, right, well, why is it that I have considered these people different to myself in a way that's often negative? And you're right, I think that proliferates because it's not just about gender or sexuality, it can become about socioeconomic status and mm. race. 
and you know, disability as well. And also, I, I loved what you said about the concept of being a sexual outlaw, because I've always been fascinated with the idea of the good gay versus the bad queer. You know, the individual, <laughs> the individual that's accepted because you'll assimilate as much as possible and you'll reproduce those cis heteronormative values. You and sure? then the bad queer. You well, know? you know what? Every year around Pride, we seem to have this. There's there's a circular conversation around assimilation and identity, and I think many people are too easily conflate acceptance with assimilation. They're not the same thing. I mean, I think I want to be accepted on my own terms as a queer Irish man because I've bloody well fought for it and I've made hard choices that have sometimes led to social ostracism, have led to me getting being beaten up and getting a hiding, have led to people treating me less and everything. So I feel I've earned the right to actually decide for myself what my place is in society. And also I've decided that actually my place is at the centre of society, but on my own bloody queer terms, you know? And I think that's what we should all be aspiring to do. But that doesn't mean that, that just because we're looking for acceptance that we actually have to willfully allow us allow our unique queer identity and our, our unique queer worldview to to um, be assimilated by the mainstream. Jesus Christ, what's the point then, you know? <laughs> what's the point, you know? It just feels that we're negating all of those hard... Well, all of those hard-won successes, we're just negating them all, and it just comes it comes for naught. It ends up being naught. That's that's not much life, really, you know, because it means we're settling we're settling for less. I I, I subscribe hugely to the notion that we what we do in life has a significant impact on other people. Other people are what other people watch, both as an, as individuals and also as a community. In scholar Porrick Kerrigan's book, LGBTQ Visibility, Media and Sexuality in Ireland, Kerrigan writes about the complex dynamics of Irish queer visibility in Irish media between 1974 and 2008. In explaining the mapping of his book, Kerrigan states, The book uses the term queer to describe whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, the dominant. This classification of queer in the context of Irish history is so insightful, so emblematic of what it means to be fighting for a queer Ireland, that it is more than allowing what Tony describes as a queer worldview assimilated into the mainstream. The questions we must ask now are, what is the normal, the legitimate and the dominant when we consider anti-queer Irish sentiment, both overt and implicit? How does religion, class, and race form that sense of cultural identity? What does an Ireland that makes space for the normal and the queer look like? In the next episode, the second half of this two-parter, Tony sheds light on the future of a queer Ireland. The reclamation of pride from commercialism, LGBTQ culture in rural communities, and how to approach the increasingly pertinent matter of supporting queer elders as our population ages. We are on the precipice of understanding queer Irish culture, and there is still much to learn. I hope you join us next time for part two 
of building a queer island. This episode of the Slash Queer Podcast was edited by Sam Clay, transcribed by Bronya Smith, co-scripted and produced by myself and Matt Thompson, and hosted, as always, by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Tony Walsh for all his fantastic contributions to this episode. I've been a big fan of Tony's for a long time, and making this episode happen was very special to me. Thanks, as always, also go to our Patreon subscribers. This project continues to expand, and as we reach the final leg of Season 1, we have now had engagement in 124 countries around the world. If you're not a patron and you want to support the podcast, you can find the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. The link is also available on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages. We release some gorgeous new merchandise in June as part of our Pride Month celebrations and are still accepting donations via coffee. And you can find the links to both in the description for this episode. Finally, our thanks also go to you, our wonderful listeners. You're the reason this project is still going and your support means the world to our little team. This episode was recorded between London in the United Kingdom and Antalya, Turkey. Music in this episode was composed by our resident audio king, Sam Clay. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at at queer, or email us at slashqueer at outlook.com. As always, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer.